We are so blessed to be a part of this congregation. I'm very thankful for all that you have done for us and the generosity that you show us, both in giving of yourselves and um, in supporting us, praying for us. And and that's a little bit of what we're going to look at today. I would ask you to stand with me, and we're going to look at Galatians. I'll be reading from chapter 3, verse 23, and I'll read down through chapter 4, verse 7. Galatians, chapter 3, verse 23, through chapter 4, verse 7. Paul writes, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoptions as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our great God and Father, we are so thankful that we can come before you this morning. And we're so thankful for the privilege of worship of corporate worship, of belonging to a body where we can gather together to start off the week, to celebrate the resurrection of our Savior and to join our hearts, our voices, and our minds as we pray and sing and study your word together. Lord, what a unique moment this is. What a precious time it is. And we thank you for it. And Lord, I pray that you would give me clarity as I explain your word, as I Bring it to bear in our lives. Remind us of who you are. Expand our understanding of of your attributes. And Lord, change us. That our gathering together might not be in vain, but that we would leave here different than when we came. That our thoughts, our thinking, our attitudes would be changed, brought into line with your word. That we may be more equipped more ready, more ready, and able to share the gospel, proclaim the glory of Christ, speak of his excellencies before a lost and dying world. Inform our minds, fill our hearts, and free our tongues to bring glory and honor to you, we pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Please be seated. The last time I was uh, back in Croatia, the end of October, we were there and we were receiving a team that came into Croatia just before uh, All Saints Day, two days before All Saints Day or the day before Halloween, which is probably more familiar to you. And like many Catholic holidays, All Saints Day is a, a sad display of man's efforts to ingratiate himself to God, to curry favor for himself or, in this case, for his loved ones with God by doing all kinds of things, covering or decorating graves with candles, with wreaths, paying for prayers by the priest, purchasing indulgences, which, which really amount to uh, bribes or incentives to God, paid through the church, of course, so that your loved one can escape purgatory and get into heaven sooner, as if God needs or would ever accept a kickback. And of course, it was the anger, the frustration of, of selling indulgences by the Catholic Church that led to um, one of the, or was really the watershed event that led to the Reformation when, when Martin Luther, in protest to this, uh, put his, his um, 95 Theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg. And of course, we don't have a problem with honoring the dead, right? We don't have a problem with, with uh, showing respect. But, uh, but, the, but the amount of money that's collected and the false hope that somehow God will accept us or our loved ones into heaven sooner by what we do is both criminal and tragic. In Croatia, people who don't have the money to feed and take care of themselves are spending it and going into debt for those whose eternal destiny has already been determined. Because Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28 tells us what? It is appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. It's a tragedy. And this whole practice leads us to ask the question, does God need our money? Is God in financial straits? Is God in a crisis so that if we don't jump in with our uh, gifts, that he won't somehow pull through? Or to be more crass, is God in the business of selling tickets to heaven? Or taking bribes to hurry up the process? Of course he's not. That's not the biblical picture of who God is at all. Far from it. God does not need our money. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but the Bible tells us that God is wealthy. In fact, it says in the Psalms chapter 50, or Psalm 50, verse 10, that he owns the cattle on a thousand hillsides. The Bible, as we even read this morning, tells us that God is rich, but his wealth is not only in material stuff. As Joel read for, from um, Psalm 145, and also in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 7, and Psalm 86, verse 5, and Psalm 103, verse 8, and Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, they tell us that God abounds. He is rich in loving kindness or faithful love. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, and again, Psalm 86, verse 15, tells us that God is abundant in loving kindness and truth. The book of Ephesians hits on the wealth of God repeatedly, saying that God is rich in mercy and in grace. 
He's also rich in kindness and tolerance and patience, according to Romans chapter 2, verse 4. And we are so thankful that he is so generous to share all of these gifts liberally with us. And so this morning, I would like to help you focus your minds on all the reasons we have to be thankful. I want to talk to you about the generosity of God. And we're going to direct our attention primarily to chapter 4, verses 4 through 7 of Galatians. And I want, to see you in the, I want you to see in this text two great gifts as well as some collateral benefits that come from God to us, that demonstrate God's generosity, and that should evoke in us a response to Him of generosity, but also to one another. Now, as we focus on God's attribute or the characteristic that we see in this passage, that God is generous, as I said, we're going to find two gifts very clearly. It's a very easy passage to, to, to organize, to diagram, to to uh, analyze. We're going to see other collateral gifts that go with those two gifts. But this marvelous truth that we find about God is really secondary in this passage. It's, it's revealed along the way, we could say, as Paul argues that man is not justified by works of the law, and that if we were to return to the law as a means of, of growth, it would be the same as rejecting God's grace. It would be a return to a base religion of human achievement instead of divine accomplishment. This passage that we're looking at is part of a a third argument that Paul makes against those who think that you have to add some kind of work, some kind of ritual in order to be saved and to grow in Christ. And of course, we know that to put our confidence in our works is tantamount to to adding our own works to Christ's work on the cross, as if to say, that isn't enough. Here, let me help you. Paul's point is that both acceptance with God, as well as our continuing relationship with God, belong to us by faith. It's a privileged state that is available for all people who believe, who repent and put their confidence in God. It does not depend upon any works of the law that we would perfect or supplement what Christ has already done. In the church in in Galatia, there was a party that had come and they had bewitched the members of the church into thinking that they need to supplement their faith with their works, with their keeping of the law. They put the responsibility for growth exclusively on believers. And in doing so, they annulled the role of faith in spiritual growth. And so in this passage, Paul emphasizes that by faith you are sons, and you cannot do anything to add to that position. Whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, whether a slave or a free man, a man or a woman, you already are sons by faith, you are already baptized in Christ, you have already put on Christ, you are found in Christ, and our own efforts will not add to that. It's an essential truth. It's important. It's something we need to remind ourselves of, think about. Paul is confronting the teaching that man improves by works his standing 
He affirms that grace is through faith. He affirms that by faith, by grace through faith, man is justified. Faith frees us from, from bondage of the law, just like a, Christ, a child is, is freed from its, uh, or a slave is free from its master. Before you were under a master, before you were under a guardian, but now, by faith, you've been made a son or an heir. And so faith gives us an intimate relationship with God. In no way should we return to a religion of achievement or to slavery, slavery, knowing that we have already received full rights as sons and heirs. This is on the basis, as we know, of God's completed work through Christ, who died in our place. He took away our guilt. He took away our punishment. And and so Paul warns the believers then, and he warns us today not to be carried away with any promise that we can somehow, with our own deeds, with our own acts, add to what God has done not by circumcision, not by observing the Sabbath, not by attending church, not by keeping man-made standards. Nothing can we do to add to what Christ has already done. And we need that same warning today. Where we live in Croatia, Catholics labor to add to Christ's works with their prayers, with their masses, with their own good works, with something that they think that they can do to deserve God's favor, with purchasing God's favor. But we as evangelical believers, as Protestants, also with external standards, with man-made rules, we can add to what Christ has done. And we can begin to judge ourselves and judge others by those rules. And we need to beware. Not only should we not do that, but we shouldn't be intimidated by those who do, who think they're better than others because they keep certain rules. Instead, we should live by faith and with God's enablement strive for holiness, absolutely, and we should seek to live in a manner worthy of Christ. But it's by faith and by God's grace. But as Paul makes this argument, he gives us insight into the generosity of God. And that's where I want to focus our minds this morning. Instead of being bewitched by the accomplishments of others, instead of uh, uh, being impressed with ourselves and our own accomplishments, we should instead be lost in wonder at the kindness and goodness of God who gives to sinners all things generously. So let's read Romans, or Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 again. And we look at this first gift that God gives us. Paul writes, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, this passage is compact. It has great theological implications that are related to Christ, to our salvation, to God's providence, his sovereignty. So we're going to have to skip over some of the details but what we see here, first of all, is that God's great, first great gift to us in this passage is his own son. God sent forth his 
son. He did it at the fullness of time, when the time was exactly right. There were many conditions that were ideal for the spread of the gospel when Christ came into this world, when he um, took on human flesh. And we would expect that because God is sovereign. He worked all these details out for the perfection of time, for the fullness of time. And when it was time, then God took the initiative and he sent forth his son on a mission. The word here, sent forth, is the same root as the word apostle, someone who is sent on a mission. But it is emphasized that, that God sent him out with a very specific purpose. God sent his eternally existing son forth to fulfill a promise to fulfill the prophecies, to fulfill his design, his divine will. A decision that was made before creation, before the fall, according to his plan at a predetermined time, God sent forth his son. This passage tells us that in verse four, he was born of a woman, perfectly adding humanity to his already existing divinity. He left heaven, became a man, and verse 4 also tells us that he was born under the law, required to keep the law without deviation, and ultimately becoming a curse in our place because he was paying the curse of the law. Paul explains this in chapter 3. So God the Father sent forth his son, not to do reconnaissance, not to to check in on us, not to grace us with his presence, not to be only an example of of good morals and unselfishness, but God sent forth his son. He gave his son to die. He gave his son to suffer an unfair death, the just for the unjust, and yet the son did it joyfully, voluntarily, He gave himself to be a substitute, to die, to bear away God's wrath for our sin. God gave to sinners, to the ungodly, to his own enemies, that which was absolutely precious and priceless. The most precious thing he had. He gave his son. What generosity. And why did he do this? Well, this leads us to two collateral benefits that we receive with Jesus Christ. And we see that in, verses, in verse 5. We see at the beginning of verse 5, so that, that tells us that there's a purpose coming up, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. So the first collateral benefit we receive with Jesus Christ is redemption. In Scripture, redemption refers to God's ransoming, ransoming of believers through the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross and and all the benefits that this receives. What this emphasizes is that there was a great price that had to be paid for our salvation. And so we might ask the question, well, well, to whom is this ransom paid? Who, uh, from whom are we redeemed throughout church history? And even sometimes I think in our own careless thinking, we, we think, well, we had to be redeemed from Satan because we belong to Satan. Paul says that we belong to to the realm of darkness. But even though we belong to Satan and lived within his realm, that ransom was not paid to Satan. 
The ransom was not paid to sin, some kind of a uh, entity, abstract entity. Even though Paul again says that we are slaves to sin, God didn't pay sin a ransom. No, the ransom that had to be paid was paid to God Himself. We had to be saved, purchased from God, who was bound to pour out His wrath on us, and we were ransomed by Christ's own blood, His own life. And that ransom, that sacrifice, is sufficient. There is nothing, as Paul has been arguing, there's nothing that we can do to add to that. What God required of us, he gave himself generously. Paul says this is why Jesus came, to redeem those or save those who had broken the law, who were under the law's jurisdiction, so that he might redeem, the beginning of verse 5 says, those who are under the law. Christ came under the law himself to save those who were in that predicament. And yet he was not guilty. He submitted and fulfilled the law, saving those who could not submit and fulfill the law. And with the gift of the Son came redemption to all who would repent and believe in him. But, the, but with the Son, there's another benefit that is accrued to us. We see it in the second part of verse 5. Look at it with me. It says there, another that, that we might receive adoption as sons. Adoption is a beautiful picture of God's grace. And as I interact with this uh, fellowship, this body here, I see uh, beautiful pictures of adoption in the families of this church. And I'm so thankful that this is a church that loves and practices that. It's a wonderful, concrete picture of God's grace. God did not just set us free. He didn't just save us, but he adopts us to be his own. This is an aspect of of salvation that Paul emphasizes. With our redemption comes a relationship, a very intimate relationship. Note what one commentator, James Buchanan, says. According to the scriptures, pardon, acceptance, And adoption are distinct privileges, the one rising above the other in order in which they've been stated. The privilege of adoption presupposes pardon and acceptance, but it is higher than either. What is he saying? God doesn't just say to us, because of Christ, I forgive you. Now, go on your way. You're free. He doesn't uh, save us or redeem us with any kind of resentment, as if to say, well, I, I saved you, but, but look at what it cost me. He doesn't hold that over our heads. No. He says, because of Christ, I will make you my very own. He forgives us, he accepts us, and he embraces us, putting us into his own Family. And if it were not for Christ, if he did not give his son to us, none of those benefits could be ours. Again, how generous is our God? He gives us his son, and with that, redemption and adoption. 
But we want to see the second great gift that God gives us. So let's read again chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Paul continues and he says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a son, no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So verse 6 tells us that there's another great gift. God sent forth the Spirit of His Son. It's the same verb that Paul used to describe what God did in sending forth the Son on a mission. Here, He sends the Spirit on a mission. Again, God takes the initiative to save us and to help us to come to our aid. This time, He doesn't send the Spirit for us like He did the Son. Instead, He sends the Spirit into our hearts. The Spirit of His Son dwells in us because we are sons, not just children. We're going to come back to that. But because we are sons. Among the many things that the Spirit does for us, for instance, He equips us for service. He gives us gifts that are unique to us so that we can serve the body of Christ. He convinces us that we belong to God. He convicts us regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Spirit teaches us. He guides us. He comforts us. He helps us to grow all of these things. But another vital ministry of the Holy Spirit is that He affirms this intimate relationship that we have with God the Father. We are not under bondage. We are not under fear like we once were, but we have a genuine relationship with God so that we can turn to Him as our Father, as our Dad. Now, it says here in chapter 4, verse 6, God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And, and maybe you've heard that uh, that's almost the equivalent of saying, Daddy. That kind of uh, close relationship that we would have with the Father. And I would hesitate a little bit about that. The word Abba is the Aramaic word for Father. And it is an intimate word, but it's still an official word. It's a word that would have been used in legal documents. There's still honor, there's still respect attached to that word. But there is warmth in that word as well. I think we need to guard ourselves against sentimentalism in our Christianity, as if we could crawl up in God's lap and give Him a big hug. We need to respect and fear God. We need to balance that fear with love and intimacy. We have both. Now, why is Paul so careful here to say sons instead of children? Is this an artifact of a patriarchal society? Well, we need to understand that there is a difference between the two. And it's not because a son was more valuable than a daughter. I I hope my daughters know that I wouldn't trade any of them for a hundred sons. In fact, if we look at this passage, the opposite of son in this passage is not daughter and and not really child. What does it say in verse 7? You guys know how to observe the text. You know how to study the scriptures. What does it say? Therefore, you are no longer a... Slave. So the opposite of son is slave, not daughter. And, and we lose something when we, when we flatten out the scriptures in order to make it gender neutral or non-offensive. 
It needs to be translated son and not child. Why? Paul is making a distinction here. The real difference here is that you're not just a biological child, but a son with full privileges and rights. In fact, in verse uh, 1, Paul says that, that a child does not really differ that much from a slave. A child without privileges, a child which has not been named a son, was not much different than a slave in Paul's day. A child does not differ at all from a slave, he says in verse 1. But once the child made the transition to becoming a son, he was in a position with more rights, more honor, more privileges. And an adopted child could be designated as a son. It's kind of like the Old Testament where there is great emphasis placed on the firstborn who had all the rights, all the privileges, all the honor, and a double portion of the inheritance. A child was born into the family, but a son had to be recognized at a certain time, the fullness of time. A child was part of the household, but the son could enjoy the family and take advantage of the benefits. He could uh, appropriate the family's resources. A child was under a master or a guardian, but the son has the liberty of an adult. And keep in mind, a child was not guaranteed an inheritance, but a son is the heir of the father. And that leads us to a third additional benefit, a corollary benefit that comes with the gift of the son, and that is we receive an inheritance. We've seen two great gifts that God gives us with with great generosity. He gives us his son, and, and with his son, he gives us redemption and adoption. And then he gives us his spirit, and with the spirit comes an inheritance. What does it mean to have an inheritance? What does it mean that we're heirs, or if you're from Flintstone, Georgia, that you're heirs? Well, we have, with a whole... uh, with, with all that we received already, we have a whole treasury of spiritual blessings and privileges that are available to us. We have the future revelation of our inheritance because our co-heir, Jesus Christ, has gone ahead to prepare a place for us in our Father's mansion. We don't think about that enough. Our inheritance is in heaven where no one can touch it or take it where time and changing values of society do not affect it. According to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 and 23, we share in the rights of the firstborn the preeminent heir, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus himself says that we will inherit the earth, and we'll also inherit the kingdom. And we inherit God himself. The psalmists over and over again say that he, he is our portion. And one inheritance I didn't think about, uh, but, but we sang about this morning, we'll be saved to sin no more. Saved to sin no more. What is that going to be like? We always ask, will we recognize each other in heaven? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think we'll recognize ourselves in heaven to be without sin. That day when we're freed up from the sin that holds us back and that causes us to stumble. Divides our hearts. We will never lose our inheritance because 
again, it is not based on what we have done, but it's based on what Christ has done. It's based on grace. It's on God's goodness and his generosity. And again, God did not have to give us all of these things. He could have with benevolence saved us, but not established that eternal relationship with us. He is big. He is generous. He is big-hearted. He gives of himself. In reference to this passage, John Owen, the great Puritan uh, theologian and preacher, said this, when God designed the great work of saving sinners, he appointed in his infinite wisdom two great means thereof. The first was giving his son for them, and the second was giving his spirit to them. And hereby was made a way for the manifestation of the glory of the whole blessed Trinity, which is the utmost end of all the works of God. God, in his infinite wisdom, chose to glorify himself by redeeming sinners, giving his Son for us, and giving his Spirit to us. When God the Father gave the Son as a sacrifice and God the Spirit as a deposit in us to guarantee that we will eventually come home, He gave Himself. He gave all of Himself. He gave from Himself the blessed triune God. This is generosity. And it calls for a response. So, how do we respond? How do we respond to the generosity of God? that gives us the Son, gives us the Spirit, gives us redemption, adoption, and an inheritance. Well, the obvious application of this truth is that we should be generous just like God himself is generous. And one of the ways we do that is giving generously to God of our resources. And and this is a church that does that. That's the easy application. And this is a church that is exemplary in that and, and we have been blessed as a family because of that. And we are thankful for your generosity. But I have to throw that in there because I'm a missionary, right? <laughs> but of course, how we do administer the possessions, our property, our finances, all that God has entrusted to us, that is a good and valid measurement of our spiritual health. We need to, by faith, believe what Jesus himself said. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And what if we lack that element of joy that that Paul talks about in giving? Paul teaches the Corinthians that we ought to give regularly and, and sacrificially according to how God has blessed us, but also cheerfully because God loves a cheerful giver. How do we free ourselves from or, or, or bring that joyfulness into our giving if we lack that? Well, we need to meditate on God's generosity. Meditate and think about all the great gifts that he has given us, and, and that will free us from a miserly spirit toward God. God is generous to us, and we ought not be selfish with him, but we shouldn't just look at a material application We shouldn't be selfish with him of our own time, our own energy, our own devotion. God gave of himself to us. Do we give of ourselves to him? Do we completely trust him? Do we lean on him? 
Is there a part of your life that you're selfishly holding on to that you think, I can manage this better than God? What desires, what needs, what fears do you need to give over to God? What concerns are keeping you from Jesus' lordship in all areas of your life? What area of your life are you saying, you know, that's just not realistic. It doesn't work that way. Certainly God doesn't expect me to give him what? What is the thing that occupies your mind that that you're constantly defending and and arguing with yourself and, and even with God over? Trust him. Put your confidence completely in him. Generously give those things to him. And he will relieve you of those burdens. You will find that you were foolish to think that you could ever manage better than God himself. God is generous to us and we ought to also be generous to him and to one another. We need to give of ourselves to God, but we also, in faith, need to be generous to one another and give ourselves to one another. We need to risk generously loving one another from the heart. We must not be stingy with our kindness and our care. Some of us are are very good at at creating a safety zone around ourselves, a a zone of self-protection, a zone of self-interest, a zone of self-love. We act as if there's no problems in our lives. Everything's okay. I'll get by. But we live in fear of people finding out what our true struggles are. We're more concerned that someone might take advantage of us and and manipulate us than we are about loving our brother or our sister. And let me tell you, if you love others fervently from the heart, as Peter says, people will guaranteed take advantage of you. They will use it maybe even against you. But that's faith. We entrust ourselves not to them, not to them returning in like, but to God who commands us to do that, to love unselfishly, to give of ourselves. What do we expect? We're a big group of sinners, right? We're imperfect people trying to become more like Christ. And in that process, we step on each other's toes and and we confront people for for sins that, that we commit ourselves and we are hypocrites. Not that we aspire to be, but we are all growing toward Christ, toward conformity to Christ. And in that process, we're going to disappoint one another and we're going to have opportunity to forgive one another, to care for one another, to help one another and to graciously love one another and give of ourselves to one another. It's going to happen. But it shouldn't cause us to not love our brothers and sisters out of fear of what they might do with that. Do not selfishly neglect the means that God has given us to help us to grow and love and please Him, the body of Christ. Now, as a missionary, there is one thing I want to say. And please understand, uh, parents, none of 
your children have come to me and said, you know, this is happening. But sometimes I wonder, sometimes I think, are there parents who are undermining their children's aspiration to serve God fully? In many ways, maybe, you know, don't get too carried away at school with that. Or, you know, make sure you don't offend anybody at work with your Christianity. But also even, you know, um, maybe, maybe uh, uh, going on a short-term missions trip is not the best thing, you know, this year and next year. Maybe some of us are, are concerned about our children's safety more than we're concerned about them serving and taking advantage of the opportunities they have, the desires they have, fanning into a flame their aspirations to serve the Lord. I'm very thankful um, and, and found in this past year especially uh, a more greater appreciation for the parents of missionaries. I'm very grateful to God that never once in 18 years or even before that, when we began to think and, and pray, never once did my parents or Nina's parents discourage us. Never once in 18 years have my parents said, why are you going over there? Why are you doing that? Why do you have to serve there? There's so many needs here. We found that among our missionary colleagues, that is a rare, rare blessing. And my parents were not crazy about the idea initially, but they trusted the Lord and, and they got through that and, and God has, has blessed them. And seeing how, how so many churches have, have uh, blessed us because of uh, our service and, and, and been a blessing to us, but it's amazing to think about how many our colleagues face that all the time. And we can be the same way as parents. You know, it's better if you just serve here. Be careful. Be careful, parents, that you don't undermine your children's desire to serve the Lord, to stand strong for the Lord, to grow in the Lord. Now, having said that, of course, we need to be wise. And, and there may be mixed motives, right, for, for going overseas, for serving in short-term missions. I understand that. It's a great time. We have a great time. We work hard, and we enjoy ourselves. But now this is for all you young men out there. If you think you're going to come over to Croatia and steal my girls' hearts, <laughs> I'll see through that in a heartbeat. And we have ways of dealing with that. We'll take you down to Bosnia, drop you off. <laughs> no. Sometimes I think we even get worried about, oh, what if my kids are going for the wrong motives? Trust the Lord and, and, and believe that God can use even that. And then one final warning, one final encouragement. When we think of all the gifts that God has given us, Redemption, adoption, and inheritance, health, material blessing, wonderful children, salvation of, of loved ones. 
when we think of all these wonderful blessings, be careful that we don't focus on the gifts and forget about the giver. It's very easy to do. We become so overjoyed with our justification, we forget about the justifier, the one who laid down his life for us. We enjoy so much the benefits of our salvation that we forget the benefactor who sent his son to die. Thomas Goodwin warns us, let us consider what a dishonor it must be to Christ that his train and his graces that he gives us have fuller attention and concern from us than he himself who is the king of glory. As if Isaiah in the temple is, is there and being overwhelmed by the glory of God and says, wow, those are really nice shoes. Wow, look at your train. Look at, the, look at the glory. Look at what a great experience this is for me. And we become so focused on the gifts that we forget the giver. God himself, who gave his son and gave his spirit so that we might know him and be with him and serve him. God's not going to demand anything from us that he has not already provided. And having given us his son, Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? God is a generous God. Let us respond to him with our own generosity, enabled by his grace, strengthened by his spirit to him and to one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We, thank, we are thankful that you have seen fit to reveal yourself to us, to make yourself known to us. You did not leave us in the dark, and you did not only save us, but you brought us to yourself, and we praise you for that. We thank you for that. We know that there is nothing we could ever do to deserve that. And yet, God, we pray that you would also motivate us, move us, uh, send us from this place with that same message that you are a generous God to sinners who will repent and believe. That we would go from this place dwelling on you, dwelling on our Savior, and speaking of him to those around us who do not know who will not believe. Give us the grace to risk loving one another generously, but also even the world around us. Knowing that you loved us and you sent your son for us when we were yet sinners, enemies, ungodly, rebels. We praise you. We thank you. I thank you for all that you are doing through this church and in this church. And Lord, we pray that your mighty hand will still yet be upon it, leading it, leading the elders, guiding them, directing them. Lord, we praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.